You know, I was talking with my summit group this morning about praying, and um, we were uh, in Acts 4. I don't know if you remember, but in Acts 4, Peter and John have just made a uh, uh, great declaration uh, of their faith in Christ and whatnot in the temple. And the temple guards and the uh, uh, rulers and whatnot, leaders of uh, the temple have gotten all upset, and they've had them arrested, thrown them in jail overnight. And I'm sure that was a long night because they probably expected what happened to their leader uh, was going to happen to them. Uh, But as we know from Scripture, it didn't happen to them. And uh, they appeared before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was amazed that these were just common, ordinary folks, but they spoke with a boldness and an understanding that just, you know, it blew their minds. And so when uh, they told them not to do this anymore and to cut it out and uh, we'll really get mad at you next time, and uh, Peter said to them, hey, listen, um, you can tell us what you want, but we have to talk about this man we've seen raised from the dead. And uh, they let him go after threatening him some more. And Peter and John went back to where all his gang was uh, holed up. And um, they got together and they prayed. And what did they pray? Well, they prayed Scripture. They prayed a passage from uh, Psalms, uh, maybe a couple of passages from Psalms that are recorded in uh, um, Acts 4. And so, gang, if you're ever wondering what you should pray, pray Scripture back to God. That is a great thing to pray. Um, Thy will be done. Where does that come from? Lord's Prayer, yeah, in Matthew 6. And so uh, it's really not the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. But um, when we come together to pray, you know, oftentimes I start out with prayer just because I want to catch my breath and go, Whoa, what am I getting ready to do? Um, But really, it's a time of recognizing that we are coming into the presence of a holy God. And um, we want to do things His way. And the opportunity to pray back to Him His words is always good. Okay, so um, as we start, one thing I probably should have done last week, uh, but uh, I want to make sure I cover it first tonight and that is the title in the Hebrew Bible for this book. Um, Leviticus actually comes from the Latin Vulgate. Uh, but the first word in the book in the Hebrew Bible is the word that's translated, and he called. And, you know, to me that really points to the relevance of Leviticus uh, to our lives today. God is still calling man to have relationship with him today. And he called. And in fact, he called each and every one of you and me, thankfully. Okay? And he is calling his people to live holy lives, to make his name famous with those who don't know him, and to recognize that we are living in the presence of a holy God. If we've put our trust in Christ, we're doing that because his spirit indwells us. Okay, and just as he's calling the people of Leviticus to be a holy nation, to be um, a uh, um, representative of his, to make his name more famous in all the world, 
And that's one of the ways I think that Israel missed the boat is that they kind of, you know, huddled up in this holy huddle and they uh, said that, oh, well, the Gentiles are bad and we want to separate ourselves from them, uh, from them and they're unclean, not recognizing that, hey, yeah, God cares about uh, um, maintaining right relationship with him, but he wants us to go out and make his name famous among all the nations. You know, the Great Commission. Okay, so the bottom line is that we're called uh, to be holy. And the fact that uh, uh, the title of this book, I love it, that and he called, he still calls us today. And so tonight we're going to talk all about sacrifices. That may be why some of the people didn't come. They thought, hey, this is watermark. They'll do anything. We might sacrifice a goat or something. Um, I tried to talk Holmes into uh, having y'all write down all your sins on a piece of paper and we'd go burn them, but he thought that'd be hokey. He's probably right about that, okay? But at the end of this, we are going to take a little time and give you a chance to reflect on are there areas of your life in which God is uh, not yet in control, okay? So that's something you can be thinking about. I always want to continue to lift up the journey. Today's journey is written by my pal uh, Brett Johnston, who you got to see in action uh, a little bit uh, on Sunday. Um, his um, admonition that 90% of statistics are made up on the spot is one I will never forget. Okay? Uh, but here he's talking about, he's writing about uh, uh, Leviticus 9 and 10 that we studied uh, last week. And just listen to a couple of things that he has to say about that. Aaron's sons had instructions on how to make their offering to God. Remember in uh, chapter 10, it didn't work out so well for them. Instead, they changed it up and did what they wanted to do. I can so relate to that. I often want to take what God said and spin it to lessen my sin. Don't we all do that from time to time? We try to take what God has told us in his word and change it just enough to make it work. Brett goes on, I'm the king of justifying my actions. I didn't want you all to think I'm the king of justifying my actions. Um, but maybe I am. You know, it's hard to get away with things like that with my wife sitting out there uh, because she knows the way that I try to justify my actions. You know, I usually try to make it her fault. Um, I'm a lawyer um, by training and practice law for 30 years, and so of course it's somebody else's fault. It's never my fault or my client's fault. That's just the way we roll, okay? So I am the king of justifying my actions. I could relate to that uh, sentence in Brett's Devo. And I guess we all can do that uh, rather easily, uh, he writes. And then he jumps down, uh, uh, I'm skipping some of it, um, I lied to myself that I was giving to God the things he wanted by his service and whatnot. And yet I knew he wanted my offering the way he asked, to him only, without me in the middle. God wanted my holiness without idols of addiction. He wanted this one area of my life that I refused to let him change or even inform. I was adding to and changing the fire offering. I added my sin and desire uh, to his work and thought I was okay. And he concludes, so thankful for our Savior who took the place as my once and for all final offering. Otherwise, I would have been consumed by fire long ago. And so 
that is a great insight into what's going on in Leviticus 9 and 10. But that's not where the journey stops, okay? Because every day, people um, have a chance to make comments. And I want to read you a couple of the comments from today. Um, here's my favorite. Um, it's from, a, um, uh, I, I'm assuming it's a woman named Casey. And she writes, ouch, just ouch. I mean, is that beautiful or what? I mean, I, I would say ouch uh, to that passage. And here's what my friend Sue Bolin writes. Um, she says, Today's chapter is one of those stories that drives home the point that God is not kidding about honoring his holiness. I'm reminded that his rules are not for the sake of having rules. They are guardrails for us. They keep us from plunging into harm and destruction. How about that? So these rules and regulations for the nation of Israel, they're not about God being picky, but they're about him setting up guardrails to protect and keep holy his people. That's a great thought. All right, so read with us as we go along on the journey. Um, the things you should have gotten as you came in, I hope you got uh, um, These are my, the slides for tonight. You can take notes on them or use them for airplanes. Try not to sail them while I'm talking. Um, and then we also have uh, um, a little sheet I did um, on the sacrifices, okay? And so all I did was I just said, okay, so what's similar about each one of these sacrifices? And so I, um, and we'll talk about this in some detail, but I, I set out what was the sacrifice, okay, so burnt offering, and then I um, outlined uh, um, what was being actually offered, where was it being offered, why was it being offered, the procedures that were to be followed in offering that, and uh, you'll see uh, on some slides when we get to it, um, you've got to have a microscope to read all these on a slide because the procedures are detailed. And then finally, the result. And so, you know, gang, when you come to a passage of Scripture that has a bunch of parts, one of the things that will help you understand it uh, is to try to compare and contrast the different things under examination to see how they're similar, how they're dissimilar, and to help you categorize uh, what's going on in that particular passage of Scripture. So here's an example. Um, I've been teaching a little staff study uh, on the book of Revelation. And so if you've ever read Revelation, you know, in Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven letters from uh, uh, Jesus through John to seven churches. And so you can compare and contrast those letters on the basis of the way they depict Christ, on the commendation he gives that particular church, on the rebuke he has for all but one of the churches. I'm sorry, um, let's see, is that right? Uh, all but two of the churches he has a rebuke and uh, the exhortation that he has for each one of the churches, and the promise that he gives to uh, uh, the ones who overcome or the ones who conquer. Okay, And so you, in doing that, you really get a handle on what's in those letters. You can do the same thing. That's what I tried to do in this chart for um, the sacrifices. Okay, Now, we don't have to become experts in the sacrifices, but what we, what we need to become experts on are what does this reveal about uh, the character of God, 
And what does it say for us about how we should take that timeless truth and look at applying it in our lives today? Okay, are you with me on that? So uh, hopefully this chart will help you uh, do that sort of work. And I was going to have us break into groups and work through this, but i got to tell you, gang, it took me a long time to do this. Um, it's pretty detailed to uh, have to really try to capture all the different procedures and whatnot. And so I tried to put scripture references in there to help you follow along um, about where I was going. And we'll get to those and talk about them in some detail in a minute. Okay? And so, you know, God cares about the details. So think of it this way. Think for a minute, you know, who is the one VIP celebrity of your life that you would go, man, if there was one person I could have dinner with, come over to my house and just have a chance to talk to, think about who that would be. Okay? And now that once you've got that in your mind, think about what would you do to get ready for that dinner? You've got to cook it. You've got to have the house ready. I mean, would your house look like it looks tonight, right now? Maybe not. Maybe you would work to make sure that every detail was right and you'd find out, you know, well, does this person like this kind of flour or this kind of food or this kind of um, thing to drink or whatnot? You would be concerned about every detail. It doesn't matter who the celebrity is. But if you take that then and multiply it to the point of saying the God of the universe is going to be dwelling in the midst of our camp. Would you be concerned about the details for that? I think we all would. And so it's not a surprise that when God gives detailed instructions, uh, the Israelites were all about carrying out those detailed instructions. And if you remember, um, as we saw in... um, Uh, Leviticus 8 last week. You remember the key phrase from Leviticus 8? Anybody remember that? Hmm? As the Lord had commanded. Um, Leah, do we have some books back there? Give this gentleman a book. Um, As the Lord had commanded. Okay? And so, you know, God cares about the details. And he cares about the details of your life. And he wants to be involved in those details. All right, so before I use all my time uh, uh, telling stories and all, thank you, right there in the front row. Thanks. All right, so here we go. Here we go. Next slide, Peter. There we go. All right, so we're in week two. We're going to talk about the sacrifices. Let's go to the next slide. I'm going to just let you do it, Peter. All right. So um, remember, as we go, we're remembering four little words to help us study the book of Leviticus. The first is holiness. How about this quote from C.S. Lewis? How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is is irresistible. Think about that in your own life, about people you've met that you would call holy. I mean, they are irresistible people. So holiness is one of those four words. 
Worship is another one of those four words. Reminder. The, the book of Leviticus is a reminder to us of what? That God is living in our camp. Okay? And we're going to see in the burnt offering that the fire had to be kept going day and night. Reminder. And then finally, it calls for a response from us. And our response is to do things as God commanded. All right, next slide. little quick review. The theme, holiness, that's not uh, hard to figure out. Uh, the purpose, to show that the Israelites, um, to show the Israelites how to live holy lives in the presence of the holy God. And as we talk about this, um, remember that this is the first book that the Jewish parents taught their kids. Over half the Talmud, the commentary on the, uh, the law, is concerned with understanding Leviticus. And it furnishes the basis for understanding a ton of New Testament passages that otherwise, if you don't know the Old Testament, it, you have a hard time understanding. And as we looked at the book of Hebrews last week, we saw that. God's the direct speaker in almost every page as he gives instructions to Moses. Uh, 38 times or more we see uh, the words, God spoke to Moses or God spoke to Aaron. No other book contains more of the very words of God than the book of Leviticus. Um, the central message, God's people are to be holy as he is holy. And the key to understanding is just the fact of the uh, living God in their presence. He was present in every aspect of life, in the mundane, everyday affairs, as well as in religious concerns. He was living among them. Okay, and we also took a um, look at the tabernacle. This obviously was the center point of the way the, uh, Israel, the Israelites camped. In fact, the camp was all around the tabernacle. It was in the very center. Anybody been into Africa? If you go see the Maasai people and see their villages from the air and look down on their villages, what do you see in the very center of the Maasai villages? Anybody know? Cattle. Exactly right. Um, I don't know if that's book-worthy, but, uh, you know, hey, huh? that's close enough. <laughs> All right, so the, why are the cattle in the center? Well, they live in Africa, and they're lions and things that eat cattle as, uh, you know, hors d'oeuvres. And so they keep the cattle in the center because that's the most important thing to them because it was, it, it's the, uh, the basis of their economy. It's what keeps them alive. You know, they use them for milk and all sorts of different things, okay? And so, for the, what was the most important thing to the people of Israel? Well, it was their God. And his tabernacle was what was in the very middle of the camp. And so, you know, wherever they went, you know, think about a big circle. Wherever you go, you're going to be crossing that center sometime. And it's going to be a daily reminder of the importance of their relationship with the living God. Okay, so remember, uh, it's a pretty simple setup. We've got the altar of burnt offering, the laver, table of showbread, and the lampstand uh, in the holy place, and that's inside what's called the tent of meeting, and uh, that's divided by a big curtain. And on the, uh, um, the west side, um, 
uh, of the uh, uh, tent of meeting is the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant uh, was kept. And remember, as we discussed, we talked about how um, the altar of burnt offering speaks of atonement, atonement, which was a temporary covering of sin. And in doing so, that gave them a great picture of what was going to be the ultimate covering of sin as Christ dealt um, with um, sin by sacrificing his life for us. When we think about sacrifice, what do we think of? Well, you know, John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love hath no man than he lay down his life for his friends. Uh, we just, last week it was D-Day, the uh, uh, memorial of uh, June 6, 1944, where, when a bunch of guys laid down their lives for their buddies and for this country, that there might be freedom. So when you think sacrifice, uh, think about 1 Peter uh, 2.24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. The labor is a picture of regeneration. That's where the priests went to wash before they went into the uh, uh, tent of meeting, into the uh, holy place. It's a picture of rebirth, of uh, regeneration. The lampstand, Jesus is the light of the world. The table of showbread, Jesus is the bread of life. The altar of incense, even right now, uh, Romans 8.34 says that Christ is offering intercession on our behalf. The curtain is something that his death removed that barrier between God and man. It was torn literally from uh, top to bottom. And then finally, the Ark of the Covenant signifying God's presence in their camp. Um, in the next slide, uh, we see some pictures of the different elements. You can see the uh, uh, altar of burnt offering right there in front of the tent of meeting. And then inside the tent, you'd see in the bottom left, the table of showbread and the lampstand. Bottom right, the uh, altar of incense. And then a depiction of the Ark of the Covenant in the top right. All right, so we also talked about salvation in the Old Testament and the New and we made the point that it doesn't matter whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, that people establish a relationship with God by uh, believing in him, by faith, okay? And the picture that's used in the Old Testament, Genesis fifteen six, and in the New Testament, Romans 4, 3, is Abraham, that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, we maintain the uh, relationship with God in the same way. Um, both are done, whether it's Old Testament or New, by obedience. And the, the people in the Old Testament were obedient to what? The Mosaic Law. In the New Testament, we're obedient to uh, what Paul calls in Galatians 6.2, the law of Christ. Um, but there's also a law of liberty that the believer has. You know, God has declared all foods lawful. Okay, but not all are profitable, profitable or edifying. Um, and so we are, as believers in Christ, we are bounded by the law of liberty, which says that I am not going to do things that cause my brother to stumble. Okay? And so, yes, we keep the commandments of Christ and obey the law of Christ in the New Testament, but we also have liberty to do things that uh, the people in the Old Testament didn't have. But this liberty is something that we use in a way 
to build our brothers and sisters in Christ up, not to cause them to stumble. Okay, does that make sense? So whether it's establishing a relationship with God or maintaining a relationship, it's the same whether it's Old Testament or New. Established by faith, maintained by obedience. That's what we're going to see in talking about the sacrifices. Okay? So the uh, uh, source of those commands comes from the law of Moses or the law of Christ. All right. Then we talked a little bit about Leviticus 8 through 10. Okay? And so remember the people are still at Mount Sinai. And this, uh, uh, these three chapters really provide a historical link between the books of Exodus and Numbers. And, you know, the inauguration of the priesthood that we looked at last week as the tabernacle was dedicated was the climax of Israel's encampment at Mount Sinai. And what happened um, during the week that the tabernacle was dedicated is told in Exodus 40 and then in Leviticus um, uh, 8, 9, and 10. And those accounts are complementary and neither would be complete without the other. Okay, and then we uh, dived into, uh, or we dove in, dive, dove. Um, we started looking at uh, Leviticus 8 through 10. We uh, uh, titled uh, 8, Consecration to Ministry. And we saw uh, Moses ordain and set apart Aaron and his son for ministry. Key phrase is, as we talked about earlier, as the Lord commanded. And then uh, in Leviticus 9, we called that beginning of ministry because we saw then Aaron take on the priestly mantle and start to offer the sacrifices uh, himself. And the key phrase in that uh, uh, chapter repeated several times is before the Lord, emphasizing the presence of God in the midst of this. And then remember the results in uh, uh, Leviticus 9, 23 and 24. You saw uh, the glory of the Lord appear and fire comes out and consumed the offering. And then in Leviticus 10, we see great spiritual victory followed by um, defeat. And um, Aaron's boys go do something they shouldn't ought to have done. And we call that one violation of ministry. And we see that principle that after great victory, sometimes we've got to be careful to guard against spiritual defeat. And then finally, we looked at um, some... New Testament sort of application of Leviticus 8 through 10, and we looked at how the book of Hebrews answers the question of uh, who our high priest is today in Hebrews 4 and what sacrifice he offered in Hebrews 9, why it's superior in Hebrews 10, and what it means for us today, Hebrews 10, uh, 19 through 25. So let's now turn uh, to what is the law? Next slide. Um, let's see. Well, let's go right here. Um, now let's go back one. We're missing uh, the um, what is the law? Slide ten. Is it two down? All right. So go to the next slide, Peter. We'll just read that little. Um, and this really emphasizes what we just talked about. Israel's initial relationship with God as his redeemed people had been established through the Passover sacrifice on the night of their deliverance from Israel. The offerings presented at the tabernacle were the means or the, uh, the means of maintaining that relationship between the Israelites and God. Okay? 
a quote from uh, uh, Dr. Schultz there. All right, now let's go to the next one. Okay, um, so what is the law? Well, it's essentially the constitution of the uh, uh, nation of Israel, okay, of God's people. It has two purposes. It's regulatory in that it governs their conduct with themselves and whatnot and with others and before a holy God. Uh, but it's also revelatory in that it reveals things about God, it reveals things about themselves, and uh, it reveals uh, about the way that they are to interact with each other and with a holy God. Um, commentators will say it's got three parts. A moral part that talks about how we conduct ourselves, a civil part that governs our interactions with others, and then finally, a ceremonial part that deals with the way we relate to a holy God. Okay, next slide. All right, so let's take a quick look at um, um, Leviticus uh, 1 through 7. Simple outline, burnt offering, chapter 1, chapter 2, grain offering, peace offering in 3, 4 to 5.13 deals with the sin offerings. 5.14 through 6.7, the guilt offerings. And then Leviticus 8 through the end of chapter 7, we have instructions for the priests. Um, Peter, go to the uh, why sacrifices slide. Okay, so why does God ask for sacrifices? Okay, well first we have God's example. And you can see this pattern begins in Genesis. Okay? Um, in the garden, when, after Adam and Eve sin and they uh, try to use fig leaves uh, to cover their nakedness, what does God do? Well, he provides skins. And where do skins come from? Well, from animals. And so I think the first sacrifice actually occurs right then. Okay? But then, from there, Cain and Abel bring offerings to God. You know, uh, God accepts Abel's offering. He brings the uh, best of his flock. Um, you know, there, there's some indication that uh, part of the problem uh, with Cain's offering could have been that it, it wasn't necessarily the best of what he had to offer. Okay? Um, Noah um, is recorded as uh, offering the first burnt offering uh, after the flood. Abraham builds altars all over uh, the promised land. And, uh, um, you know, we know in uh, Genesis 22 that uh, he was told to offer his son as a burnt offering. Well, uh, God provided a replacement, and uh, Abraham actually sacrificed that ram as a burnt offering. Isaac uh, built altars, and Jacob uh, as well. And then we have the, the, the biggest picture of all, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Okay, so God has given them an example of offering sacrifices. And then in Leviticus 1 through 7, we see God's command uh, to offer sacrifices. Again, offering our, uh, emphasizing our four little words of holiness and worship and uh, um, reminder and something that calls for a response. All right, so let's dive into the uh, sacrifices. I know this is what y'all have been waiting for. All 
All right, so let's start off looking at the uh, little table. And you see there, uh, under the what column, you have a, a bull without blemish. But God also provided alternatives, uh, either a sheep or goat or even uh, uh, doves or pigeons. And so why did he do that? Well, you know, people had different uh, means of prosperity uh, in those days too. And so some people, uh, um, the wealthy among them, could afford to offer a bull. But uh, uh, if you'll remember, um, I think when uh, Joseph and Mary come, what do they offer? Well, they offered uh, turtle doves or pigeons, okay? And so in doing that, God made uh, the ability to offer sacrifices available to all, regardless of their level of prosperity. Where did they bring them? To the tent of meeting. Uh, the why is for atonement and acceptance before the Lord. And then, you know, I know you can't read the procedures, but I, I kept it up there because, one, you've got it before you on your little chart, but look at how detailed those procedures are. God cares about the details, okay? But he cares about the details in your life and in my life. And so you have got to let God into the details of your life, okay? He wants to be involved in all of it. He wants you, he wants all of you. We're going to talk about Romans 12, 1 and 2 at the end, okay? He wants you, all of you. He cares about the details. I'm not going to take the time. You can look at the uh, procedures, but just a couple of notes here. Um, note how the uh, person offering the sacrifice put his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And clearly that was a recognition that this Innocent animal is dying in my place, okay? Just as his son has died in our place. Um, the priest does something with the blood in each one of the offerings. Um, that indicates the uh, sacredness of the blood thrown against the sides of the altar for the most part. Um, life is in the blood. God cares about the blood and shedding of blood. And then uh, he burns it with fire. And look at the result, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And we're going to see that that's true of the first three offerings, but it's not said about the sin or the guilt offerings. Okay? And I think that's uh, on purpose. The, uh, um, you know, um, sin is a uh, big deal in God's eyes. Okay? And he cares about the... Um, what's happening with each of his people. And he cares about the things that separate him from having relationship with his people. And so the burnt offering and uh, um, the grain offering and um, the um, peace offering all are described as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So the burnt offering was the most common sacrifice. It was offered every morning and every evening. And you know, the altar of the burnt offering has been described as the focal point of where God met the Israelites. If you look in Exodus 29, 42 through 43, it says, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. And this is God speaking. He says, There I will meet with the people of Israel 
and it shall be sanctified by my glory. So the altar of the burnt offering is where God met with the people of Israel. We've talked about the options, making it possible for anyone, regardless of his resources, to offer a burnt offering. But one thing is true of all this, that God required the best that man had to offer. And you know, gang, he wants the best from each of us. He wants the best of what you have to offer. He wants all of you, and he wants your best. He wants your best effort. He wants your best time. He wants the best portion that you have to bring him in your daily life today. It's also interesting to note in the bird offering that both the person making the offering and the priest had responsibilities to carry out in making the offering. And ultimately, the skin was given to the priest, and all the rest of the animal was consumed by fire on the altar, uh, which was really uh, one of the unique aspects of the burnt offering. So morning and evening, uh, the burnt offerings provided daily atonement for the sins of Israel, removing the defilement of sinful man in the presence of a holy God. And uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, the priests were responsible for keeping this fire going day and night. Uh, Leviticus 6.13 instructs, The fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And so what does that do for them? Wherever you go in that camp, I bet you could see the glow from that altar. And so it was always a reminder that, hey, they are living in the presence of a holy God. The burnt offering uh, uh, offered daily for the nation and voluntarily by individuals provided the offerer with assurance that he was accepted in the presence of God at the tabernacle. And you know, gang, insurance is important. Assurance is important to all of us. Uh, I can't tell you how many guys I've met with that, uh, you know, when you ask them the question, if you were to die tonight, how certain are you that you'd go to heaven? And I'll hear you know, five or eight or something like that. If it's anything but a 10, I know we need to do some talking about that, okay? Because God wants us to be certain about our salvation. He wants us to uh, uh, be equipped with assurance. And we always end up at 1 John five eleven through 13. And 13 says that these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. So assurance is, was important to the uh, uh, Israelites in the camp, and it's important to us today. You know, our own fellowship with God is just as important to us as it was to the Israelites. And 1 John 1, 7 through 9 teaches us that if we walk in the light as God is in the light, then we not only have fellowship with him, and with other believers, but we're cleansed from all sin by the blood of Jesus. And we restore that fellowship, as we talked last week, about doing what? About confessing our sins, okay? And confess, in the Greek, is just that simple word that means that we say the same thing that God says about our sin. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think that, and we, this is a great question to ask Andrew, 
but I don't think that the people necessarily, as a big group, came together every uh, time in the morning and in the evening. People came voluntarily to offer burnt offerings uh, during those uh, time frames. Uh, but it may have been that the, the, the entire camp stopped and they gathered together and those sacrifices were offered. Let's save that one for uh, Andrew. It's a great question, okay? He'll be here next week and uh, we'll pose that question to him. Okay, so the ultimate fulfillment of the burnt offering is Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And listen to this. His physical life was completely consumed. He ascended to God, and his covering, that is his garment, was distributed to those who officiated over his sacrifice. Does that sound like anything? It sounds just like what happened with the burnt offering. Okay? It happened outside the gate. Um, His sacrifice, once for all time, satisfied God's justice uh, for our sins and made it possible for those of us who trust in him, to have a relationship with God. And so you see in the life of Christ and in his death a perfect picture of a burnt offering. And this burnt offering in the Old Testament was to get the people ready so that they would recognize their Messiah when he came. Okay? Does that make sense? But they missed him. All right. And, you know, gang... Were it not for the grace of God, we all would miss him. And so you've got friends and family in your life who have missed him. And so the secret or the the charge to us is not to give up, to continue to be a faithful witness to um, the gospel and to what it means to live with Christ. We can't give up. So keep praying for those people that are in your life that uh, have missed it so far. You know, it may take 15, 20, 50 times for hearing the gospel for it to really kick in. And, you know, there are people uh, who will be in heaven today who on the 51st time go, now I get it. All right, that's the burnt offering, okay? Okay. It was the most common one. And at the end, we're going to cover uh, some things to help you remember each one of these. The grain offering. It typically uh, immediately followed the burnt offering. You can see that um, it was different in that it was uh, uh, an offering of fine flour mixed with oil and uh, incense, frankincense. And uh, there were different things... uh, um, to be done uh, depending on whether it was baked in the oven or baked on a griddle or cooked in a pan or if it was first fruits. And um, it was interesting in that the person took a handful and the priest burned that as a memorial portion and the rest was given to the priest as part of their sustenance. No honey or leaven, um, no first fruits on the altar. It was seasoned with salt and resulted in a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You know, it's interesting, salt was an essential ingredient in every grain offering. And in the Old Testament times, a gift of salt was often used to seal a pact of friendship. It provides seasoning, salt does. It preserved the food for the priests, and it symbolically reminded um, the priests that God had promised part of the grain offering 
uh, for them as a provision as they devoted themselves to ministering well at the tabernacle. And you know, by bringing a grain offering, a worship worshipped in the assurance that God was pleased with his offering of the produce of his hands. It was an act of consecration and dedication to God of uh, the way that God had blessed that particular person. And you know, today we are, offer, we are exhorted to offer our lives as a sacrifice, and we have the opportunity to give back to God through uh, offerings of our time and resources uh, to say thanks for the way that he's blessed us and to be able to share it with others. You know, you guys pay my salary so that I can get up here and do this. In doing that, we have the picture of the grain offering uh, to give back to God some of the resources with which he has blessed us. Yes, ma'am. Well, that's a good question. Now, scholars aren't exactly sure, but both of those will result in fermentation. And you remember what got Abihu and Nadab perhaps in trouble and how God specifically, after they had been um, um, consumed, uh, God spoke directly to Aaron and said, hey, don't be drinking strong drink when you're going to be coming in here and ministering to me. And so it may be that uh, it had some indication from that, some implication of that, that, you know, God didn't want things that produce fermentation being a part of this grain offering. That's a great question. Okay, um, any other questions on the grain offering? It was a little different, and it was typically offered after uh, the burnt offering. The next one in Leviticus 3, we have uh, a peace offering, and that permitted a, a bull or cow without blemish, the best of uh, the herd that they had to offer. Uh, but God also permitted a, a male or female lamb. It's interesting there that it didn't have to be a, a male of the species, or they could even bring a goat. Same sort of thing with the person laying his head on the uh, uh, peace offering. And uh, um, again, you see uh, a pleasing aroma to the Lord is the result. And interestingly, all the fat belonged to uh, the Lord. And uh, um, it co- concludes with a statute forever that you need neither eat the fat nor the blood. This was an optional offering in which the offerer and his family shared in a festive fellowship meal, eating part of the sacrificial animal near the place of sacrifice. And the fat was considered the choicest portion, and that's why they were burned on the altar as an offering appropriate to God alone. It's also interesting to note that the breast and right leg of the animal were allotted to the priest as uh, their portion, so the priest benefited as well. And then... The rest was given by God to the offerer. And the culmination of this offering was a festive meal that the whole family participated in. Um, We see in Leviticus 7 at least three different types of peace offerings, a thanksgiving offering, a free will offering, and a vow offering. This offering uh, refers primarily to the uh, offerer's sense of being at peace with God. And out of that experience of well-being, An offering of praise and thanksgiving was normal. In fact, uh, uh, Moses repeatedly encourages 
the Israelites to rejoice as they came to present their offerings. If you look right down Deuteronomy 12, 6, and 7, let me read that to you. This is Moses' instruction uh, to the uh, uh, next generation of people, uh, the, the new generation that will actually enter the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy. The first generation dies off in the wilderness after they refuse to go in and try to conquer the land. And uh, Deuteronomy um, 12, um, Moses instructs the new generation, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And you know, gang, man, that is so true for us today, that we have the opportunity to rejoice in the way that God has blessed each and every one sitting in this room. Okay? And part of that blessing is to give back to God not just our um, um, material things, but our time. And to give to others uh, not just material things, but to give them the uh, precious gift of our time, okay? Um, because the peace offering was the last in the instructions for the priests in Leviticus 7, it may be that it was, in fact, the concluding sacrifice uh, and symbolized completeness or even the highest spiritual realization of relationship with God. Hang on one sec. Um, and I want to close the uh, uh, peace offering by um, outlining what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. If you have your Bible, turn over to Ephesians 2, 13 through 22. And so who is our peace offering? Well, let's read Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to you who were near, the Jews. And through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so Jesus is our peace. He is the one who has established peace between us and God. And so in doing that, he's a picture of the, the peace offering that was made. And I just thought that that passage from Paul just really captures it well. He himself is our peace and he has uh, uh, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, does that help you understand what Paul's talking about? 
And that's, you know, one of the reasons to, for us to study the book of Leviticus is that it helps us understand passages in the New Testament. I had a question right here. Yes, ma'am. Um, well, all things have been declared lawful for us today, okay? Um, and I can tell you probably from a health standpoint that eating a, a diet composed of fat is not going to be a good thing for you. Um, and so it may not be profitable, but those things have been declared lawful for people today. I think that, again, remember what Sue Bolin wrote, that these weren't uh, things to um, penalize or try to restrict his people, but they were guardrails to protect them. And I think this is one of the guardrails to protect them. The eating of blood, I think, is something that just emphasized uh, the, the sacredness of blood and the shedding of blood. Okay? Does that make sense? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, let me hold that question to the end, and I'll get with you, okay? That's a, uh, an excellent question. I need to think about that one, all right? Yeah, sure. Um, that was a question about the first fruits, and uh, she asked a great question about um, the passage says that uh, um, um, if the first fruits, fresh ears were roasted with fire, but then it says no first fruits on the altar in 2.12. So let's hold that question. We'll talk about that. We're uh, running short on time. All right. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Um, well, that's a great question. Now, that's one that I would probably have to ask God uh, about why the, the male versus the female. But clearly the male was important as, uh, um, were you raising your hand? You want to take that one, Blake? Okay, I'm sorry. The, the question was, why does God, like, for example, on the burnt offerings, require only male animals to be offered? Um, friend down here said that maybe it's because Jesus was a male. Um, I don't know. Um, th- there are theories about that. Scholars have speculated that, well, um, um, there weren't as many males typically, okay? And so they were therefore more precious. That, and that if you killed the female, then that meant that, uh, um, like, think about a herd of cattle, okay? We have any cattlemen in here? Okay, here's a cattleman right down here. Um, how many bulls do you have in a pasture versus how many cows? So not, not very many bulls a lot of uh, uh, cows, that would make the bulls that much more precious. And that would indicate that you were offering something that was that much more valuable. You're bringing the best you have to offer. I don't know. Save that one for heaven. Um, That may be the only place you're going to get the definitive answer. Okay? Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. That's a lot of bulls. Um, the, the question he was asking every morning, 
uh, every evening, we're killing a lot of cattle. Uh, no, um, it, there was uh, one offered uh, for the nation, okay, for everybody, and then it was voluntary if you came to offer on your own, okay? Are you with me? All right, let's, one more. Um, they were voluntary and not necessarily done every day. The question was, are the grain and peace offerings done every day? They were done as people brought them. Okay? All right, let's keep going. We're up to sin offerings. I'd like to skip over these, but I can't. All right, so think about this. What was the first thing that Moses did um, and that Aaron did when they got rolling in Leviticus 8 and 9. I think if you go back and check, someone check me on this, but I think it was to offer a sin offering. And so it was important to the Israelites to purify not only themselves, but even the uh, structures that they had come into contact with. And so before the altar of the burnt offering and the tabernacle could serve as a meeting place between man and God, a sin offering was required. The uh, main element of uh, the sin offering is purification. You know, sin taints people, and it taints anything they come into contact with, including the tabernacle, in the eyes of a holy God. Um, It wasn't required that a sin offering be made daily, but it was required that it be offered annually on the Day of Atonement. And we're going to talk about that in our last class as we uh, cover Leviticus 16. The blood of a sin offering was always applied to purify or make holy objects that were involved in a meeting between God and man. And uh, this offering was made when an Israelite committed unintentional sins or neglected his normal obligations. And if you'll notice on the uh, chart, um, there were um, three or four different uh, categories. We had the priest, the whole congregation, a leader and the common people. Priests, leaders, common people, and the whole congregation. A wide variety of animals was allowed, and even an offering of fine flour uh, was uh, permitted, making the uh, sin offering accessible to everybody. You know, burning the remainder of the animal outside the camp helps explain the meaning of Hebrews 13, 11, and 12 that says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Another picture you can understand now having studied the book of Leviticus. Um, So what about intentional sins? What did the law say about those? Well, for a number of them, the Mosaic Law uh, specified death for a number of them. Murder, adultery, incest, and a a variety of them. Uh, Other intentional sins would be covered on the Day of Atonement. Uh, But, you know, the bottom line is that then as now, God cared first and foremost about the person's heart. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 51. Uh, the Bathsheba Psalm, 51, 16, and 17, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. This is David speaking. 
You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so, you know, gang, then as now, God is concerned most about our hearts. He's concerned about your heart. He's concerned about my heart. And he's concerned about what are we doing with our hearts. You know, he wants all of us. He wants our heart, and he wants us uh, to have the right motivation. And so in uh, dealing with these sins, he cares about the heart, not just filling the box, checking uh, the box, that sort of thing, filling the square. He cares about where our heart is. And you know, Christ's sacrifice has made it comparatively simple for us to restore fellowship with God. First John 1 John 1.9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you know, in our stubbornness and in our pride, sometimes it's hard for us even to agree with God. I can illustrate that in a pretty vivid sort of way. Um, when my little boy was two, he's now 30 and he's not so little anymore. Um, when he turned 16, I stopped wrestling with him because he hurt me uh, every time I wrestled with him. Uh, and I especially don't do it now after he's been to ranger school and served in the ranger regiment and whatnot. Uh, but when he was two, I'll never forget the first time that he had to say that he was sorry for something. And it literally took 30 minutes for him to say through clenched teeth i'm sorry and you know that is a perfect picture for the way i am in front of a holy god sometimes i know that i should say i'm sorry my parents have been sitting there trying to get me to say i'm sorry for a long time usually it's my wife saying stop being an idiot you've been an idiot for three days now she's too nice to use that word that's my word Okay, but the the bottom line is that all of us are that way in front of a holy God. He cares about our hearts, and he wants us to be willing to say with him, Hey, Lord, I screwed up. You know, that's one of the great things about getting older, is that, man, I know I'm a knucklehead now, and it's not hard to say that. Um, Whether it's in front of, you know, all of y'all, It's a little harder to have to say it in front of my wife by ourselves. Um, But, you know, it has gotten easier to say that in front of God most of the time. Sometimes it's not. Do you all have that problem? I mean, we all do. But that's what he wants us to do, to be willing to say, I missed the boat on that. You know, sin is just a picture of missing the mark. And what does um, Romans 3.23 say? How many are in the sin boat? all of us and fortunately um that's followed by romans six twenty three that tells us that uh, even though the wages of sin is death the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord so we have the opportunity to move from darkness the domain of darkness into light all right that's enough about sin now we get to guilt All right, I've never been a big guilt guy, so I've only got about three points on guilt, okay? There were different types of guilt offering. 
you'll check your uh, chart. So you had guilt offering from unintentional breach of faith and the uh, holy things of the Lord or the Lord's commandments. And then you also had a breach of faith against a neighbor by deceit or robbery or oppression or false swearing or whatnot. And um, this was required when an Israelite had violated the ownership rights of either God or man. It was available for only individuals. This was just done for individuals. And the key feature of a guilt offering was restitution. And, you know, the thing that was added was that there was a 20% fine, if you will, that was added on top of making full restitution. Okay? You know, man, I think that's one of the things that's missing from our penal system today is that, you know, somebody comes and steals something and um, there's no requirement usually of making restitution, of full restitution. That ought to be part of the crime. You come steal my car, well, you ought to have to bring my car back to me in the, either the exact same shape it was or get me a new car. But that's the way God rolled. He said you make full restitution and then you add 20% to it. Again, it was a ram without blemish. And it's interesting to note that, you know, rich or poor, everybody had to bring the same offering uh, on a guilt offering. So when you think guilt offering, remember it's uh, for individuals only. It requires restitution. There's a 20% uh, kicker there. And it was the same sacrifice was required for both. And if you look at your chart again on the sin and uh, the guilt offerings, look at the result. It's the same for all of them. He shall be forgiven. And that is a blessing uh, for all of us. Okay, so I'm going to leave for you Leviticus uh, 6.8 through the end of chapter 7. These are instructions to the priest that add additional um, information and things for the priest to do. I'm sure that the priest probably kept these things as a little manual uh, so that they could uh, um, comply with the, uh, um, all the, the detailed instructions and whatnot. Um, but they add additional information about each one of the different, different offerings. And so I want to give you a little summary here of each one of the different offerings. Okay, so let's start with the burnt offering. It was the most common offering. It was offered daily, morning and evening, and it symbolized the daily renewal of Israel's full consecration to God. The grain offering was normally brought with a burnt offering, and it acknowledged God as the source of material blessings, and it was a practical means of sharing what God had provided for one's livelihood with the priests. The uh, sin offering was next. It provided cleansing and purification for the Israelites so that people could come into the presence of a holy God. The guilt offering uh, required restitution upon violation of the rights or property of God or man. And think um, reparations or restitution to restore that relationship. And then I say the peace offering to last because I think it uh, uh, may well have been uh, actually performed last. It was optional and voluntary. And it was an expression of praise and gratitude. It was the most festive and joyous of all the sacrifices because it culminated in both the offer and 
uh, the offerer's family enjoying a festive meal in the tabernacle area or near the tabernacle. Okay? So what happened to the sacrifices? Are sacrifices still being offered today? Hmm? The temple was destroyed. That's exactly right. And so um, sacrifices were offered up until AD 70. Um, The Romans came in and they destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple, which had replaced the tabernacle. Okay? And uh, that temple was actually the second temple. The first temple was the one that Solomon built. And that actually was the direct replacement for the tabernacle. Remember David? I had a heart to want to build a house for the Lord. He said, hey, how can I be living in this palace when my king and the Lord uh, is living in a tent? And uh, ultimately, God said, well, you're a man of war and your hands are bloody. Uh, I'm going to let your son build the temple. Okay? But David accumulated a, a bunch of, of implements for the temple. You can read about that in First Chronicles where he... Um, started gathering the things that ultimately would be used in the temple. But his son Solomon built the first temple. Um, Then uh, um, as uh, the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was sacked and they took all the stuff uh, out of the temple um, and over to Babylon. Uh, The Jews were in captivity for 70 years and uh, then... They were permitted, uh, they went away in three waves of captivity. They were permitted to come back in three waves. And as they came back, uh, they were led by um, some folks you can read about uh, in Scripture. Um, Zerubbabel led the first wave back. And uh, Zerubbabel, as uh, Blake always says, that's a great name, girls. Uh, If you're looking for a name for your firstborn son, Zerubbabel is uh, one of the things to consider. Okay, Um, but as they came back, what's the first thing you would do if you're returning from um, exile and all the land uh, has been destroyed and it's just a bunch of rubble? What would you build first for safety and security? The walls. But God doesn't work that way. And so he had them come back and first rebuild the temple. And so that temple uh, was the second temple, and it was um, enlarged upon and uh, what expanded by uh, Herod uh, into a huge temple mount. And that was actually the temple that uh, uh, Christ worshipped at, okay, the second temple. Okay, so that temple existed until AD 70. In the Olivet Discourse, uh, the Lord predicted that that thing was going to be torn down, and he told his disciples that not one stone was going to be left unturned. And I've actually seen some of those stones that uh, the Romans pushed off of Temple Mount. I mean, they're as big as Volkswagens. They're huge, okay? And so the, uh, um, when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was sacked, they stopped offering sacrifices. Why was that? Well, um, in the Mosaic Law, uh, the Jews were instructed only to offer sacrifices in places that uh, God instructed them. And so the temple was the only place for them to be able to offer uh, sacrifices. Okay? And so 
will the Jews start offering sacrifices again? Well, I think so, okay? Uh, in Daniel 9, um, in the vision of 70 weeks, um, I think it's uh, Daniel um, 9, 27 or so, um, it talks about that uh, um, the uh, uh, prince of the people, um, how does it say it? Prince of the people to come um, will actually enter into a tr- peace treaty with Israel. And uh, um, I'm giving you my gloss on this now. Uh, it doesn't say this uh, in um, exactly this way. But then he will permit, as a part of this, he will permit uh, sacrifices and offerings to be made once again. And the Jews are already gathering together. Andrew's going to be able to talk a little bit about this as well. They're already gathering together uh, implements to be used in the temple. And uh, they are planning to rebuild the third temple. And when that temple is rebuilt, they'll start offering sacrifices again. How long will they do it? Well, if you study the book of Revelation, you know, uh, or even in Matthew, that uh, and Daniel predicts it as well, that at the midpoint of the tribulation period, the Antichrist will erect, I think, what will be an image of himself in the Holy of Holies. He will demand to be worshipped, and he will cut off sacrifices uh, and offerings again being offered in the temple because he will demand that the entire world worship him as God. Okay, so you didn't know you were going to get a little Daniel in Revelation here. We'll throw that in for free. Um, but um, I think temple, uh, the temple will re- be rebuilt. It'll be the third temple. And it'll be that third temple in which sacrifices will once again be offered. Okay, does that make sense? Questions? All right. Let's talk about uh, our application for today. And turn with me to uh, Romans 12, uh, 12, 1. This is a verse many of you probably know by heart. But it fits so well with studying the book of Leviticus. Because this is what God wants us to do. I appeal to you, therefore, uh, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I mean, look at the words there and think about our four little words for the book of Leviticus. I mean, they just fit right there. And so what's that, what's that saying? That's saying the same thing, that he wants the best of what we have to offer. He wants all we have, and he wants it to be set aside for him. Well, does that mean that you're supposed to quit your job and go into full-time Christian work? Well, no. You're in full-time Christian work if you've trusted in Christ, okay? And your ministry is wherever you are. It's in your workplace. It's in first in your family. It's in your home. It's in your neighborhood. It's wherever you are. When I finally figured that out about my law practice, um, I practiced law for 30 years. I'm a much better lawyer than I am a preacher. Um, I like to argue. 
Um, and I've tried to suppress that uh, here at Watermark. Um, you know, the um, very first meeting I was in with our new equipping team, I got in an argument with the women's director, okay? After she had interrupted me for the sixth time, I said, do you mind if I finish? Just like I'd said it a thousand times in court. I mean, that happens all the time where opposing counsel will interrupt you. And you've got to have your elbows up in court because they will run over you if you don't. And so I just, you know, kind of gave her a forearm shiver. It wasn't any big deal. I didn't think anything about it. But, you know, my buddy Blake at, at the end of the meeting kind of went, are we okay here? Uh, and um, um, my counterpart allowed his house. She was not quite okay. And I went, okay about what? What's wrong? Well, you know, I did learn that I could have done that in a much gentler way. Um, you know, what was fun was that uh, I was meeting with a bunch of guys every Thursday. I think this happened on a Wednesday. So the next morning I went and told them, uh, what had happened, and, uh, you know, that's the way you do community. You tell them the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so I told them what had happened, and as soon as I told them what had happened, they just all started guffawing because they had heard that same tone from me as well, um, you know. And so I learned in a hard way that uh, um, my courtroom voice didn't work so well here at Watermark, Okay? Um, and so I've tried to suppress being a lawyer, um, but, you know, I, I'm here to tell you I was a much better um, lawyer than I ever will be a preacher. But the bottom line is that when I learned that my law practice was my ministry and I had the privilege of praying with some of my clients before they went and did big things, before a guy uh, went into a hearing where he could have lost his uh, engineering license, which would have you know, put an end to his uh, engineering career of 30-plus years. Um, when I uh, represented a guy who's testifying before the Senate in one of those big hearings that where there's a, you know, phalanx of cameras and the entire room's filled and, you know, everybody's waiting for you to make a mistake, <laughs> um, I leaned over to him and said, you know, buddy, this ain't Kansas anymore, is it, Toto? Um, and so when you have a chance to pray with people, as a part of your um, work, I mean, that's when your work becomes ministry. And so whether it's your family or your neighborhood or your workplace, uh, your community, whatever, that is your ministry. And so he wants us to be his people all in wherever we are with him. Okay? And I better stop right here because I want to give you about five minutes. And I want you to uh, just think about what area of your life. I want you to write it down on something. I want you to fold it up. And then I want you to think about and pray about it um, for the next couple of weeks. And then we're going to talk about it again at the end of our Leviticus study. But think about an area that is like uh, Brett Johnston was writing about, that God just doesn't have full control of, that you want to put on the altar, as it were, for God to have complete control of it, for God to be um, having 
all of you and all the best of you. Okay, so let's take uh, three or four minutes and give you a chance to do that, and then we'll wrap up. Five offerings. He wanted only uh, their best. He wants only our best. He wants all aspects of us. He wants that thing that you're still holding on to. He wants to be in the middle of that because he is a God who cares about the details of our daily lives. He wants to walk through uh, life with you. You know, um, Paul tells us that we're to pray without ceasing. Well, how do we do that? Well, that means simply that we have an attitude of prayer and that as we see things and as people pop into our minds, we have an opportunity simply to go, you know, Lord, uh, be with that person today and may uh, he walk in the light uh, of your son. And so he wants us to be in a constant attitude of prayer where we have no known sins that are blocking that relationship. He wants us to keep short accounts with him as we talk about keeping short accounts with others uh, in community groups and whatnot. So he wants us to put ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice. You know, what they, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar, okay? Well, that's what we've got to do, gang, is that we have got to be willing to let him have everything, and to give him that area of our life where uh, we're hanging on to it because I want to run my offense, not his offense. I want to do things Bob's way, not the Lord's way.